In preparation for today's sermon, I made it a goal over the summer that I was going to try to read through the book of 1 John as many times as possible. That I was going to follow the hermeneutical principle of sitting in the text, of allowing the words of this writer to sink into me without any filters of what anybody else had said. And it was about maybe 30 or 40 times that I had read it through that I came to a conclusion that I want to share with you this morning. That conclusion is this. I don't get it. I don't get it. Like, I don't understand what John is trying to do. He's kind of scatterbrained. He's kind of all over the map. And of course, it's all his fault. I mean, John, just as far as New Testament writers go, is a bit of a weird dude. I mean, just look at his other writings. Let's take the Gospel of John, for example. Imagine that you were charged with writing the story of Jesus, of writing his life and ministry and what that means to the world. How would you start it out? I mean, we've got Mark. Mark just has absolutely no chill. He doesn't even do an introduction at all. You've got Matthew and Luke. They make sense. I mean, Matthew starts out with the genealogy of Jesus, his history and what that means, and then the Christmas story of the impact of the birth of Christ to those around him. Luke just flips it around. He starts out with the Christmas story and what that means to the people around him and then the genealogy of Christ and the impact of that. Those make sense. John, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and with God in the beginning. Through Him all things have been made and without Him nothing has been made that has been made. Okay. <laughs> That's one way to start it out. Um, and then, of course, there's Revelation. Uh, have you read that thing? Now the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits that were sent to the nations. And of course, there are seven bowls and seven lampstands and seven seals. And I tell you what, I'm going to need seven naps before I can even begin to unpack what in the world he's talking about there. John is just a different dude. But I didn't give up. And I kept reading. And eventually I realized that what makes John different than most of the other writers of the New Testament is that I think John is an artist. I think John believes in the subtle power of art that kind of flanks your feelings, that sideswipes your soul, that says to you, let's go on this journey together and find these truths and understand the power of searching for what God wants to say. And I think his message to us this morning, that John the artist weaves this tapestry of truth. And if we're willing and have the patience to follow the threads along as that truth goes on, we will find a message that changes us. I think what, God, what John does in this book is he tries to teach us what it means to be a child of God. And of course, we'll unpack this through the coming weeks. Today, we're talking about right thinking. Right, Isaac? That's it? Yep. Right thinking, that's it. Yeah. Right thinking is today. We're going to unpack that later by talking about right living and eventually about right loving because we want to see the totality of what it means to follow God. And so today we talk about right thinking. And before I can get into right thinking, I've got to put a little bit of context on it because we are, of course, products of the Enlightenment. I think, therefore I am. We are, whether we like it or not, steeped deep into the philosophy of humanism, which just says, to make society right, we just need more education. Sometimes we think too much about how we think we should think. 
And we need to know that thinking is just part of who we are. Let me explain it this way. We all think, we all have thoughts, we have processes, those are meaningful things, and eventually that thinking comes out in how we feel about stuff. Our gut reactions to our emotions. And those emotions, I really believe, control how we act. I think it's our emotions that make our choices. If you don't believe me, ask yourself what you ate for breakfast this morning. I'm going to guess it wasn't the right decision, but the one that you felt you needed. And then I believe that those actions eventually come full circle, and those repetitive, concrete things that we do change how we think about things. Change how we understand our world and what is around us. So thinking is vitally important, but it is just one part of who we are. We also need to define thinking. I'm indebted to philosopher John Dewey who said that thinking is belief resting upon knowledge. I like that. It's kind of like what we hope to be true resting on what we believe to be true. And I think that's in many ways a description of what the gospel message is. What we hope is true, resting on what we know to be true. And I think this morning that that is the foundation of right thinking. That's kind of the whole message and the whole foundation of everything that I'm going to say today is that right thinking begins with a full and complete understanding of the gospel message. And John in his book over and over again tells us what the gospel is. He tells us, first of all, that to understand the gospel, we have to have right thinking that begins with the idea that I am guilty. That we understand that we have broken God's law. We understand that there are expectations of how we behave and that we haven't lived up to them. And we are worthy of the punishment that we are to receive. But John's message to us is one of hope. He says in chapter 2, 1 to 2, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Chapter 2, verse 12, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Chapter 3, verse 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Chapter 4, verse 10, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this is life in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what John teaches us is that in Christ we can say not that we are guilty, but we can say that we are innocent. That God has taken the punishment of our sin away and allows us to live in eternity with Him. That is the gospel that we know and love and is true. But I think what happens, or what has happened over time, is that we've taken that ultimate truth. We've taken that gospel and we've shrunken it. We've truncated this truth in the name of efficiency In the name of the good-hearted idea of trying to get the gospel to as many people as possible, we've taken off all these pieces and eliminated it to just simply being about what happens when you die. To just simply being about your eternal destination, and that's all the gospel is anymore. And if that's what we think, if that's what we believe, that that's all the gospel is, we suffer from wrong thinking. And that wrong thinking has consequences. You know it. I know it. That wrong thinking changes how we see the world. 
how we see our lives, ultimately how we see God. Because that wrong thinking shows us a God that kind of looks like this. It shows us a God that sounds a lot like this. Okay, it's 9.30. Time to check on Brad and see what he's up to. All right, here we go. Okay, Brad, make me proud for once. Oh, Brad, no. Come on, not again. No, no, no. Now, stay away from Brad. Brad, don't go there. Don't. (sighs) Again, Brad. Really? You did it again? Seriously. I, I, I just... I can't even. Oh. My. Self. I literally can't believe you did that. Why does this keep happening? How many times have we gone over this? How many different ways can you keep messing this up? Why can't you just... Yes. Yes, Brad. Yes, I'll, I'll forgive you. That's the deal. After all, you you sin, I forgive. Lather, rinse, repeat. <sighs> oh, okay. All right. Uh, yes, I'm Brad. I'm glad that you believe in me. I I really am. I just wish that I could believe in you. Can I ask gently? If you've ever heard that voice of God? Can I ask if you've ever heard that voice that connects how God feels about us with our behavior? That voice that gives us that vague and penetrating feeling that God is at best disappointed in us. And at worst, completely disgusted with the gap between who we are and who we should be. Can I say gently that if you believe in that God, that God is too small. And the gospel that you follow is too small. Because the gospel that John gives us in this book is much bigger. It's a much larger picture of what God has in store for His children and what He accomplished on the cross. I think John the artist, what he's doing here, whatever metaphor works for you, he's kind of like a painter who's painting with four colors. He's building a mosaic with four titles. My, my favorite is the idea that he is weaving this tapestry of truth using four main threads. And if we'll follow them along, we will hear his message of a fuller and complete gospel that is for us today. A gospel that is enough. So let's look at these four Gospels. Let's look at these four ways that John teaches us what has been accomplished on the cross, what is available for us. The first one begins with the concept that I am dirty. The second one, actually. The second one begins with the concept that I am dirty. You know that feeling, right? Wake up in the morning, look at that face in the mirror, and you're just sick and tired of who you are. What I'm talking about is that habitual, continual, secret sin that's in your life. 
That thing that no matter how much you wish to stop, no matter how many times you try to get over it, you are continually stuck. In that thing that you know you shouldn't do, but you keep going back to time and time again. And that repetitive action, over and over again, changes how we think. And changes how we see it ourselves. And we look in that mirror and we see something that is dirty and disgusting and gross. But John tells us a different story. He says that we are not dirty, but that we are pure. Chapter 1, verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Chapter 1, verse 8, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 3, verse 3, All who have hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. Do you hear what John is saying to you? You are a pure child of God. You are clean. Whether you see that or feel that or accept it or not, just begin to believe that the blood of Jesus was enough. Enough for your past, enough for your present, and enough for your future. We get this all wrapped up and messed up because we hear these testimonies of these people who had this horrible life before and came to Jesus and all that was wiped away. And we understand that God forgives the sin of ignorance. We understand how He deals with things when we didn't know any better. But what about the rest of us? What about those who should know better? Is there grace for us too? John says there is. He says that that state that we call justification, that old phrase, that it is just as we had never sinned, I think we need to go a step further and realize that the blood of Christ makes it so that as if we have always obeyed. That's the purity that He offers us in the Gospel, once, now, and forevermore. But, we also have to stop. John makes it clear throughout the book that those who call themselves children of God cannot continue in a life that indulges in sin. You have to stop. The first step in your ability to stop is to confess. It's finally to open up that door and to tell other people about who you really are and what you're doing. And I know that's hard. I know that's tough. I know that we refuse that confession, refuse that opening the door to our life for a couple of reasons. One is because we think we're alone. We think that we're the only ones dealing with these things. We keep these things a secret because we think if other people knew, they would condemn us because I'm the only one who's having these troubles. Let me tell you, that is not true. I promise you, in a room this large, you are not the only one dealing with that issue. You're probably not the only one in your row. I mean, let's be real, if your deal is dressing up as a degenerate gerbil to scare small children, that's probably just you. Um, That's your own thing. But to everybody else, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the things that have overcome us are common to man. You are not alone in your struggles. 
You are not the only ones facing these things. And if you would open up your heart and open up what is happening in your life, you would find those powerful words, Me too. So confess. Another reason we don't confess, I think, is because we're afraid of the consequences. We're afraid of what would happen if we finally told people what's going on in our lives. And I get it. You like this place. You like this school and this community, and you like your classes, and you like how you're building yourself into a career or Christian service, and you're afraid that if you tell these things, we're going to kick you out. So last week, I, uh, I met with Monty Shoemake to figure this stuff out, because to be honest, I'll tell you, in my free time, I don't sit around reading the student handbook. Like, I don't, I don't know the rules. And so I asked him, I said, Monty, what would happen if a student came to you in an attitude of confession and repentance and revealed what was going on in your life? And I didn't know what he would say, but I was so glad that I heard what I did. Because he said, our attitude as a school is that if you come to us in confession and repentance about what's going on in your life, our first and last step is to give you the resources to find healing. That we are not some holy hill of perfect saints that have it all figured out. And if you don't meet up to our standards, we're going to cut you off. That is not how we will treat you. We will treat you as people that we want to be restored. And yes, there is some situations where a mutual agreement will happen. That the best thing for you in this time is to get out of the pressures and the stress of school and focus on the issue in your life. That does happen sometimes. But the goal is always that you come back. The goal is always that you are restored to fulfilling the calling that God has put in your life. I loved how he put it. He said, I understand your brokenness in my own brokenness. And our goal is to put you back on the path and on the way of repentance and restoration and the life that God has given you. So confess. Do it. Confess to who? Well, there's a couple groups. The first person you need to confess to is someone who has an authority in your life. Somebody who has some place of standing over you that can connect you to those resources we talked about to get you back on the right path. Maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's faculty and staff, your mentor, group leader, someone who's uh, working in the church that you serve at, someone who has the wisdom and the knowledge ahead of you to be able to understand what you need, to be able to understand where you need to go. That's the first group that you need to confess to. So today, in this place, in the seat where you sit, Decide what you're going to do. Decide in this moment that your life is going to change. That you will not continue into this place of secret torment and suffering, but that you will open up to the light of Jesus and be changed. I'm going to give you that moment right now. I'm going to stop talking. And we're just going to sit in this for a moment where you listen to the voice of God telling you what to do, who you need to tell, who you need to talk to, where you need to go. Let's just sit in that and listen to God's voice to you.
know that you are clean and begin to live a life of cleanliness. I think the third gospel that God or that John puts here in this book begins with the concept that I am defeated. I think part of the reason that we are hesitant to confess, part of the reason we don't want to deal with our sin is because we think it's hopeless. Because you've done this thing so many times in your life. You've been dealing with it for so many months and years. And all the things that you've tried and all the strategies that you've put out haven't accomplished anything. And over and over again, despite all your efforts and despite all your repentance, you can't quit. And so you think, what's the point? But God's message to us in this book is something entirely different. He begins describing it in chapter 4, verse 13, where he says, This is how we know we live in Him and He in us. He has given us His Spirit. You understand what that means, right? It's this New Testament doctrine all over the book that God, in that moment of salvation, in that time that we come to Him, He empowers us with His Holy Spirit. That that spirit changes who we are. We sometimes just underemphasize that way too much. I don't know if we have this like Pentecostal paranoia or what it is, but we're scared to actually talk about what it means if God lives in us, if the Alpha and the Omega are fighting our battles alongside of us. John describes it this way. He says in chapter 2, 13 and 14, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is that that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In chapter 4, verse 4, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John's message to us is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the sin that's in your life. But do you realize how dumb that is? I mean, it'd be like being afraid of playing peewee league football when you've got Tom Brady and Von Miller on your squad. It'd be like being afraid to write your next exegetical when you've got Michael DeFazio on your right and Shane Wood on your left. We forget that in our fight against temptation, in our fight against sin, we have the beginning and the end. We have the Lord of hosts. We have the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Ancient of days and the Almighty God. So what are you worried about? How do you think this is going to go? Confess. Confess to that second group, which are your peers. The men and women around you, people in your dorms, on your life groups, those that you serve alongside, those who understand what it's like to be you. Because what happens is we try too hard to do this stuff on our own. We believe this lie that we can handle it. And you know that's not true. You know that it's not a matter of willpower or a matter of strategy. If you could have stopped, you would have done it already. So accept the reality that the Spirit and the power of the Spirit is unleashed in our communities with one another. 
that come together and meet together and say from the very beginning, we are going to be real and we are going to be honest and we're not going to sit around for hours in time and talk about nothing. But we're going to be real about what we're going on and what we're seeing and what we're doing in our lives. And find the power of the Spirit unleashed among you and find that victory. I think the fourth gospel that John writes about here begins with the concept that I am ashamed. Guys, shame. Shame is a powerful part of our lives. The best definition I've ever heard of shame is shame is what happens when what you do becomes who you are. When your behaviors and your actions become your identity. It's where you go from being someone who lies to a liar. And that understanding, the way that your repetitive actions have changed your mind, have changed your thinking, affects everything else in your life. How you see yourself, how you see God, how you see your relationships. Let me give you an example. O.J. Simpson. I mean... You know, when I was growing up, O.J. was a really big deal. Like, I was in ninth grade when the trial of the century happened. I remember it was fourth hour Spanish class. Peggy Nance was my teacher. And we stopped in the middle of some verbs or vocabulary, whatever it was, to turn on those little TVs that we had back in 1997 and watch the verdict of the O.J. trial. Because in my suburban Detroit high school, very diverse, it was a big deal. And so it was fascinating last year when ESPN put out this four-part documentary about the life of O.J. And, you know, parts two and three I knew. I lived through that. That was a big deal, the trial and and everything that went along with that. But it was parts one and four that were fascinating to me. Because part one was talking about O.J. before any of this happened. It was the O.J. I didn't know. It was kind of before my time. It was this O.J. who was the beloved son of Southern California who because of his success at USC and in the NFL and his commercials and TV and everything else was just this beloved smiling figure that everybody wanted a piece of. And then there was the trial and everything that happened and then they got into part four of the documentary which was also fascinating because we saw what happened after the trial. And I mean if you think about this theologically his guilt and innocence was dealt with. That whole thing about whether or not he was going to be punished was pushed aside. That part was taken away. But what, what, doesn't, what wasn't dealt with in O.J.'s life was the shame. Because the people before in part one that had loved and embraced him now saw him not as someone who may or may not have killed a couple people. His community saw him as a murderer. And shunned him accordingly. Because that's what shame does is it poisons and kills our relationships. And O.J.'s life was this continual downward spiral of a man trying to find anyone who would love him because of his shame. That's what shame does to us. I think that's why we keep each other at arm's length at all times. That's why we sit around for hours and talk about nothing and never get into real issues because we're afraid if we really say what's going on in our life, these people won't accept me anymore. I think that's why we treat God the way we do. Because we think that we are guilty and dirty and defeated and ashamed. And God wants nothing to do with a person like that. He may save us. He may get us into heaven. I've got my ticket home. But God wants more. John says very clearly to us that as followers of Christ, we are redeemed. 
He says in chapter 2, 28 and 29, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him in His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. Chapter 3, verse 2, Dear children, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know is that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Chapter 4, verse 15, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. Chapter 4, verse 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Chapter 5, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Chapter 5, 19, we know that we are children of God. And chapter 3, verse 1, one of my favorite in all of Scripture, we see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Because that is what we are. The message of the Gospel is that you are redeemed and restored, and that God calls you into an intimate relationship as His sons and daughters as his beloved children. I've got my own children. I want to show you a picture of them up here. Um, These are my kids. My oldest at the top is Ellie. She's nine. She is my warrior. Brave and true. I've got Aiden. He's seven years old. He's, He's kind of my Sherlock. Just a laser beam of logic and deduction. I've got my five-year-old Titus, my lover of people. He firmly believes that he's going to grow up to be Batman, which I think is awesome. (laughs) And then in the middle there, I've got my baby. My Eva. My Joy. She's every bit as adorable as she looks there. Let me tell you one of my favorite parts about being a dad. One of my favorite parts about fatherhood happens a couple of nights a week where I am putting my daughter to sleep, my little nine-month-old baby. And we have a little bit of a ritual where I change her diaper and I put on her sleep clothes and I pick her up and I look her in the eyes and I kiss her forehead and I lay her down in my arms. And I rock her. And I sing. And in those moments, I can feel every muscle in her body relax. And I can feel her body drift off in peace. Because she knows that she is loved. Because she knows that she is safe. And I would love to tell you that every night is like that. But it's not. There are nights that, for whatever reason, she fights me. There are nights where everything that I try to do doesn't work, and I have to eventually just put her in her bed and stand over her and watch her suffer. Because she won't take my love. And I think that's what we do to God. Is that in our shame, we push Him away. The one who can give us everything that we need. Because we suffer from wrong thinking and we forget who we are. The innocent, pure, 
empowered, redeemed children of God. Brothers and sisters, know that you are loved. My dear children, know that you are loved. Know that God wants to be in every part of your life. He wants to be in every moment. And every part of your disciplines and your prayer and your study and your fasting and your meditation, He wants to be a part of every relationship where you serve out of reverence for Christ. He wants to be a part of your ambitions where you throw away whether you care about how big your church is or who recognizes you or how many likes you get, but you simply serve Jesus because that's enough. He wants to be your Father. So come to Him. Repent. Confess, embrace the full gospel, and be changed. Let's pray. Father, we want to be changed. We want to be a different people. We want to be those who are fully redeemed in your blood. We want to be those who embrace the full knowledge of your gospel. Help our unbelief. Help us in the ways that we need to get better. Help us in our communities, in our confessions, to be your children. It's in your name. Amen.